You got into Harvard Law? What, like it's hard? Welcome to What Like It's Hard, the podcast that celebrates and explores the academic study of popular music. I'm Kirsten and I'm back with another episode of What Like It's Hard. Before we get started, just a reminder, What Like It's Hard is a partner of Student Minds UK, so when you subscribe through the Patreon WLIH podcast page, you aren't just supporting the network, you're also supporting the UK's leading student mental health charity. 25% of every subscription goes to the efforts made by Student Minds to empower students and members of the university community to look after their own mental health, support others and create change. What Like It's Hard is non-profit, so the other 75% goes towards creating a funding scheme that will help subsidise conference fees for graduate students, as well as aiming for an in-person What Like It's Hard conference that will be free for all participating students. You can be sure your donation will make a positive impact on the academic study of popular music by supporting both the mental health of current students and faculty, as well as progressing the accessibility of popular music research. You can find all of the information you need over on the website, which is www.wlihpodcast.com. On this episode, I'm joined by Barnabas Smith, who is an Australian musician, teacher and independent researcher. He holds a PhD from the Elder Conservatorium of Music at the University of Adelaide and his thesis focused on the construction and application of a research model to study music of contemporary open world video games. A recipient of the Naomi Cumming Prize, Barnabas is also the founder and president of the Ludo Musicology Society of Australia. This is the only body of its kind dedicated to the sub-discipline of ludomusicology, the academic study of game music, in the Australian realm. In addition to open-world game and live performance research interests, Barnabas continues to perform, compose, publish and teach music both in Adelaide and nationally. In the paper he is reading today, Barnabas expresses that the Game & Watch version of Donkey Kong from Nintendo 1982 amidst the former bass ostinato, dragnet theme excerpt and melodically driven action music that can be found in the arcade game. In an echo of the original Donkey Kong, it significantly contains a tonal coherence compromising sound effect beeps centred in E minor. Aeolian tonic triad tones and occasional chromaticism reinforce the disconcerting and frightening affectivity associated conventionally with the minor tonality. As Barnabas suggests, a paramount significance is a persistent rhythmical matrix comprised of the metronomic E beeps yoked to the descending movement of death-bringing barrel obstacles. Linearly navigating the on-screen two-dimensional plane, each jump solicits a B-beep and each step a G. This matching suggests an emulation of physical motion in a physiognomic structure, otherwise known as Mickey Mousing. Increasingly rapid beeps match the heightened ludic tension induced by barrel movement rapidity akin to recursive music works such as Beethoven's Symphony 7 in Major A and Greek's In the Hall of the Mountain King. It is argued here that the fixed minor tonality and other extant musical characteristics serve the conclusion that Donkey Kong's beep sound effects constitute a musical framework. I know it's super <laughs> to meet you too, even though you're so far away. <laughs> um, was the is the time zone okay now? I hope it hasn't held you up um, or anything. Oh no, no, it's fine. It was totally my own mistake. I forgot that 
there's a funny half an hour. Oh yeah. Um, with yeah. Adelaide. So I was like, oh yeah, that'll be my eleven, but it's not. <laughs> it's my eleven thirty, but no worries. Um, so you are a musician, teacher, and a researcher. What do you do when you go about your work in ludomusicology? <laughs> oh man. Um, at the moment, obviously, it's pretty difficult to get anywhere, um, and mm-hmm. everything's done um, hopefully with a, a decent internet connection. Um, but in the past, I've been fortunate enough to go to a number of conferences in the UK predominantly uh, and in Europe, mm-hmm. um, particularly those uh, hosted by the Ludomusicology Research Group. Um, and so I started with that when I started my PhD a few years ago, not really knowing mm-hmm. if the study of game music was even academically valid or, or possible. Um, and so I, I uh, went to Utrecht and Bath and Southampton and a, um, a few different um, conferences. Yep, it was uh, mm-hmm. a, probably the best introduction one could hope for to this area, especially with um, those people, because oh. they, they all are genuinely leaders in the field. Um, and I started to see that there was a, a growing corpus dedicated just to this um, I think it's taken quite a while for game music to be able to differentiate itself from film music and music of other media. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, as far as I can see, the newer monographs and um, um, edited collections that are coming out don't have to include the prerequisite sort of, uh, yes, it's a, a valid avenue of research and it's not quite like film music it's a bit different but you can still study it and and so I think that's a really positive move yeah I think there's a Mm -hmm. there's a a maturation that's that has uh, um, the field has undergone and now it's more Mm -hmm. a case of well it's here it's not just the new kid on the block anymore Uh, it's something that we really can start to broaden out and and flesh out um, and it's been really exciting to be a part of that movement. Super. So you just said there that there's a difference between film music and game music. What are those differences? The main difference between game music and music of almost all other media is its uh, dynamic properties. Um, so it's the fact that uh, music can take mm-hmm. extemporal changes during gameplay uh, okay. And that might be enacted by the player. It might be enacted by the game engine. Uh, it might simply be part of how that game uh, structures a certain sequence. But, of course, mm-hmm. other media, such as uh, film and television, are typically fixed. And so you can watch a movie the same uh, same way a hundred times, and you will always hear music in the same way, uh, because the scenes will play out. Uh, even films like Pulp Fiction, uh, which are built on a series of flashbacks and, mm-hmm. and different timescales, the discursive narrative is still linear in that every time you watch Pulp Fiction, the scenes play out the same each time. Whereas with most video games, gameplay can change with each playthrough. Um, and that could be as uh, uh, fundamental as an entire story development mm-hmm. changing and maybe there are a series of endings that the developers have thought up and your actions will determine which ending you get. Um, And it could be as simple as maybe your player doesn't move quickly one time and then it does another time and uh, the the music rather has to catch up and accommodate that. Um, And so there are still... I'd never say that they're they're separate film uh, and video games. Mm-hmm. Um, just like I don't think anyone would say radio and television are separate. Um, they're all connected in different ways. A lot of the um, diegetic theory around film music particularly really gave a boost to early game studies. And there is still a lot of ongoing debate about whether that works within the realms of uh, ludomusicology or not. But it was a really good starting point, I think. Um, 
And if nothing else, if one gets the linearity and the non-linearity of video games, that's that's kind of a win. That's really all you need to realize to start off with. And now you're the founder and the president of the Ludo Musicology Society in Australia. Can you tell me a little bit about that society? Yeah, well, it was based largely on my experiences with the UK Ludo Research Group. Uh, and okay. in fact, it was launched at the uh, the final day of their conference in 2017. Um, nice. And we are a member of the SSSMG, the uh, Society for the Study of Sound and Music in Games, mm-hmm. uh, along with um, an American body and a European body and... I really just wanted to set something up at home, um, yeah. home being uh, uh, Australia, <laughs> um, and I'd seen over the last uh, couple of years uh, preceding that that there was interest, there were enough scholars and academics and enthusiasts who were interested to get it up, um, mm-hmm. I thought, and so I reached out to some people and uh, worked out how one goes about uh, setting up a society like that. And so here we are. We had uh, our first, an inaugural symposium in 2018. Uh, that was in Adelaide. And then last year we were um, hosted by Ian Hart at the uh, University of Sydney. Oh, cool. And it's uh, it's been short but exciting. Um, mm-hmm. We've seen... People from all over the country converge for our symposia. Um, new people, some old faces. Uh, fascinating array of topics discussed. Um, and we've been uh, uh, very fortunate to have international interest as well. Um, in uh, Sydney last year, we had obviously the delegates who were present, um, but we had uh, a remote paper delivery from the US and someone was in Perth and they were calling in and um, it was all set up and, and it just worked perfectly. We um, we were able to, to have a, a full roundtable discussion, more or less uh, encircling the globe. Oh, that's great. And the project that you're sharing with us today, was it Donkey Kong or the music played in Donkey Kong that got you into this project? It was probably the game. Mm-hmm. It's a 1982 Game & Watch console, uh, mm-hmm. which technically belongs uh, to my brothers, <laughs> who are um, a bit older than me. That was mm-hmm. um, that was their Game Boy, essentially. And mm-hmm. um, it just so happened that that sort of got passed down to me, as it were. And uh, I, I think I hadn't played it for quite a long time. And then once I had... Um, begun my PhD and started revisiting old game experiences that I'd had that I I thought I'd give it a shot again um, and realised that it's not, it isn't really music, it's a a series of sound effects, Mm -hmm. but coming from it, from, uh, from a perspective that I have now, I think I can represent it as music um, and that seemed like a challenge to me to, to try and look past the uh, four kilobyte um, internal components and uh, and a series of beeps and and work out can it be music? Is this actually musical in some way? Fantastic. So, was there any deal of nostalgia based in your study? Yes, <laughs> yes, there was. Yeah. <laughs> um, part of me, I mean, open world games are my main area of interest. Um, in terms of yeah. uh, genre and, and game construct. But this one, mm-hmm. obviously, from uh, playing it as a young child, it has had a um, it holds a lot of memories for me. And I do find it fascinating that I can still put some fresh batteries in and it doesn't matter if it's been two months or ten years and the thing fires up again. <laughs> I'm not sure if uh, the set could be the same of consoles made today. Yeah, that's a good Well, maybe they can. I I don't want to work myself into a corner there, but suffice to say, it's still going. I think it's it's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Mm. Awesome. 
So whenever you're ready to read us your paper, you just feel free to start. That's great. Thanks, Kirsten. Well, this is Towards a Soundscape Theory of Donkey Kong Game & Watch, a musical framework of beeps. This research presents a theory through which the audio beeps in the 1982 Game & Watch version of Donkey Kong can be understood as a musical framework rather than as sound effects. It's argued here that the fixed minor tonality, poco a poco accelerando tempo, and implied cadential resolutions serve to corroborate this a posteriori conclusion. The framework takes as its launching point Neil Lerner's analyses of musical style origins in video games and Roger Mosley's commentary on the game and watch as both a ludomusical and cybernetic mechanism. As sound chips used in different market regions have been shown to produce variances in fundamental frequencies, it should be noted that the device used for this research is a 1982 DK52 multi-screen game and watch. There's significantly more musical content in its uh, eponymous arcade progenitor, the original Donkey Kong, tapped into audiences' subconscious associations with the melodramatic danger implied by the melodic theme from the Dragnet television series. Each level of Donkey Kong begins with an identical cue that playfully establishes B-flat major as the home key. And a music narrative coherence is maintained throughout gameplay by way of continuous musical accompaniments during these levels. In addition to a series of syncopated bass lines, short musical phrases also serve as stingers signifying gameplay outcomes, such as a descending chromatic line accentuating Mario's death, level completion music, and a fleeting quintuplet phrase that plays each time Mario jumps over a barrel successfully. According to Lerner, such tonal coherence and musical interest in a video game soundtrack was unprecedented, and this showcased the game's DAC, digital to analog converter hardware. If the processing capabilities of the arcade Donkey Kong's i8035 microcontroller can be considered limited, however, then those of the Game & Watch's SM5XX series are all but Lilliputian. A precursor itself to the Nintendo Game Boy, the Game & Watch's console inception was reportedly a response to the booming Japanese electronic calculator market in the late 1970s. Internal sharp processing components and LCD technology were combined to create a handheld system able to depict characters and objects in the same way that a calculator could display numerical symbols. The diminutive console invited players to test and refine their abilities to perform sequences of precise audio-visual synchronizations in pursuit of the highest possible score. Mosley and Psyche explained that this compelling mixture of cutting-edge and antiquated technologies reflects a philosophy termed kareta gijutsu no soeshko, or lateral thinking with withered seasoned technology. This rationale, espoused by Game & Watch creator Gunpai Yokoi, is built on the belief that novelty and fun are more easily found through the radical repurposing of mature, inexpensive technology than by the adoption of the latest technical innovation for its own sake. Herein lies a romantic paradox, because the Game & Watch was in and of itself a truly innovative device. Visually redolent of hand-drawn stop-go animation and produced in a series of widescreen, multi-screen and tabletop editions, the handheld console sold 30 million units in the first 11 years of its production. This popularity, notwithstanding, its audio output was rudimentary and consisted only largely of simple beeps. In lieu of the bass ostinati, dragnet theme excerpt and melodically driven action music of its arcade predecessor, the Game & Watch version of Donkey Kong uses its audio ostensibly sound effects to create its own tonal coherence. 
Game & Watch Donkey Kong's plot is as rudimentary as it is archetypal, and this is outlined in the game instruction manual. Donkey Kong captured a beautiful girl and carries her into a building under construction. The brave carpenter, Mario, comes to rescue her, following them over the girders. Donkey Kong throws a barrel at Mario to stop him, knock the girder out from under Donkey Kong to save the girl. Like contemporary Microvision and Mattel handhelds, the Game & Watch's piezoelectric speaker is germane to undemanding audio playback. Donkey Kong's three most common beeps are the primary triad tones of E minor, or a microtonal approximation thereof. An E plays with regular movement of the barrels thrown by Donkey Kong. A B plays each time Mario jumps successfully over a barrel. And a G plays with each pace forward that Mario takes. The harmonic impression created through repetitions of these sounds is an E Aeolian mode. At its most fundamental level, this intersection demonstrates a successful affective congruence of story with its impending doom and dire circumstances and the minor tonality, which is conventionally associated with plaintiveness and fear. This game is unique in that it does so without actually employing polyphony or harmony. In this view, tonic E-beeps represent the constant onslaught of danger incurred by Donkey Kong, from which each life-saving jump offers relief. The dominant B-beeps of each jump provide an interminable 5-1 cadence resolution, reflecting Mario's unremitting, perhaps Sisyphean, task. The mediant G-beep of each movement forward therefore indicates the minor tonality and Mario's ambitious trudge towards his apparent nemesis. Each tone functions either as accompaniment to the core gameplay of Mario's heroic endeavours, as diminished stingers that represent particular events, or both. When Mario reaches the top scaffolding platform, he can jump into the air and snatch one of the hooks holding up Donkey Kong's perch. Once the hook is withdrawn, Mario holds it aloft gleefully while a series of achievement points are added to the player's tally. A synchronous B beep plays with each added point at one octave higher than the usual jump B. Its sounding is very brief, but there is a G grace note prefacing these piercing tones. This note cluster departs from the otherwise consistent E minor triad produced during core gameplay using an interval of a tenth to arrest the player's attention. Once the points have been counted, a single lower octave B plays, followed by the resumption of core play. This is another example of single tones sonically conjuring a cadential effect, with a resolution of this B to an E occurring as soon as the next level begins. Donkey Kong's death signals another beep-infused meaning. Upon the removal of the final hook, Donkey Kong's platform flashes several times in tandem with an E-beep. This is ludically consequential, as this same E is already experienced with each forward barrel movement. As it also plays during Donkey Kong's demise, the association between the tonic E and the Donkey Kong character is broadened to encompass both his malevolent barrel tossing and terminal layer destruction. To it, the tonic E is itself a sonic manifestation of Donkey Kong's corporeal appetites and insatiable ambition. It is the root of both the tonic key and Donkey Kong's persona. An A beep plays when Donkey Kong falls to the ground and the girl blows Mario kisses. In another brief departure from the E minor triad, it replaces the G grace note mentioned above and is also followed immediately by a series of piercing upper octave B beeps 
and point accrual. Its role is more opaque, but an interpretation might be that the subdominant, or rather the root of a diatonic fourth chord, draws the player's attention to the significance of this gameplay event. This relationship with death, or less macabrely with demise, is reinforced when Mario fails to avoid a barrel or overhanging girder, as the same A tone signifies his own death and forced return to the starting platform. It is worth noting that several B tones also play when this happens, once again pulling the player towards the E tonic upon resumption of control. The same A tone also plays when Mario performs a mistimed jump towards the moving crane, although in this instance a shrill upper octave B precedes the lower octave A. The most obvious example, both of the minor tonality and tonal resolution, is experienced when Mario's final life is used and the game ends. A repetition of the A grace note and several B tones is heard, as with all other Mario deaths, but a final trill between an E and G accompanies the game ending. The several B tones leading to a final E-G trill implying a sustained E minor chord, solidifies the key and harmonic function of Donkey Kong's beeps. Of commensurate, perhaps preponderant significance to gameplay, is a persistent rhythmical matrix in which each E beep is yoked to the metronomic descending movement of Donkey Kong's barrels. The significance of this timekeeping beat deserves mentioning as it is perhaps demonstrating the first handheld gaming device to include non-gaming clock, timer, and alarm functions. The Game & Watch's clock function is made possible by the incorporation of a crystal oscillator, meaning that gameplay is necessarily defined by a reliance on rhythm. Mosley has most notably passed this rhythmical necessity through several different theoretical frames. Nietzsche's characterization of rhythm as a compulsion inciting an insatiable desire to give in, to comply, would seem to be highly relevant to this work. Mosley and Psyche further note the calculated rhythmical precision afforded through this timepiece invites players to test and refine their abilities to perform with precise rhythm and synchronization. This point is amplified by Hirokazu Tanaka's estimation, in which the former Nintendo sound designer claims the console's beeps are necessary so the player can have timing indications. The inexorable beeps that the Donkey Kong player is subjected to don't so much encourage as compel the player to adhere by a consistent rhythm, functioning as a beat that accompanies the player linearly navigating the on-screen two-dimensional Euclidean plane. Therefore, extra-receptive inculcation via quartz oscillations both supports and restricts the player's timekeeping while controlling Mario. This can be extended to other gameplay events, such as the successive B beeps that play when Mario experiences a death. If each E beep beat is considered a quarter note, then these beeps would function as eighth notes and always play at circa 104 beats per minute. Interestingly, the B beep that signals a resumption of play post Mario death breaks from this pattern to include a pause before and after it sounds. This acts as a brief reprieve, allowing the player to ready themselves for another battle up the scaffolding. After several successful iterations of conquering Donkey Kong, the overall tempo increases. This signals a critical departure from the clock-oriented perspective discussed above, 
as while there remains a beat for the player to fall into line with, its tempo can increase not only with each new round, but also during Mario's ongoing ascent. This means that the player is forced to react to a pulse that is more erratic than dependable, but one that persists nonetheless. The precise mechanical or ludic origin of this tempo change is difficult to isolate. For example, a specification in the game instruction manual claims that the accuracy of its clock can have an average daily differential within plus minus three seconds. There is also fan-based evidence advising that the player shouldn't take too long reaching the top as the barrels will get faster and faster. During sessions of analytical play conducted for this research, it was found that the barrel movement tempo would also increase when Mario backtracked to avoid barrels. The impact of this change seems punitive for the player, as if Mario's life-prolonging volt fuss should be punished. It is unclear whether this differential or the mere age of the console used for this research is the cause of all the increasing tempi during in-level gameplay, or both. This unknown notwithstanding, the increasingly rapid beats and subsequent rises in tempo match the height and ludic tension induced by barrel movement rapidity, and the speed with which the player must react to avoid death. Even in this graphically primitive representation, the player remains unavoidably at the behest of a compelling narrativistic impulse, namely the rescue of Donkey Kong's ingenue, or the girl, as the instruction manual states. The tension that is created through successive iterations of largely identical phrases in a minor tonality conjures associations with the motivic recursion found in works such as Beethoven's Symphony No. 7 in A major, Opus 92, Second Movement. In lieu of larger orchestrations and metric modulation patterns, the drama in Donkey Kong is developed through the consistent minor tonality and steadily increasing tempo. The latter accelerando aspect also draws to mind previous examples of such musical methods. Dynamic variation, melodic chromaticism, and staccato articulation are some of the most identifiable elements of Grieg's In the Hall of the Mountain King. While Donkey Kong displays neither chromatic nor articulation variety, and possesses very limited dynamic differentiation. Nevertheless, the same sense of escalating musical rambunctiousness, almost to the point of uncontrollable chaos, is present during gameplay. This may be primarily due to an accelerando rather than a crescendo, but it too is reinforced through the consistent minor tonality, perhaps all the more effective given the haptic interaction required of the player. It is hoped that the research presented here demonstrates a successful coalescence of musical attributes, whether explicit or connotative, and cybernetic characterization to suggest a soundscape theory through which Donkey Kong's beeps may be understood as a musical framework. The ludo-musical interpretations of Donkey Kong's monophonically insinuated minor tonality, increasing tempo, and implied cadential resolutions are, perhaps, more palatable than the stipulation that its five tones of game audio mimic Western high art music composition. Therein lies a fundamental challenge inherent within ludo-musicology. To contemplate a game like Donkey Kong not only as a commoditized toy born of market-driven imperatives, although any mechanism through which play can be better understood has merit. Donkey Kong has instead been approached here as an artefact belonging to an ongoing media archaeology dialectic, and as an artistic expression through which musical traditions are evoked and musical meaning can be discovered. To that end, this research aspires to the game and watch creator's Yokoi's philosophy of kareta gijutsu no soyashko, lateral thinking with withered, seasoned technology. Thank you very much.
I don't know if this is um, it. It's probably more speculative, uh, or, or more um, if you can call any Ludo musicology area traditional, then it's probably one of the less traditional areas um, because it's it's not taking an existing um, melodic structure or composition. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, really taking something that predated the most uh, iconic. Uh, early game music soundtracks that we all now uh, sort of accept as part of the early canon, um, which uh, mm-hmm. were largely from Nintendo as well. Just going to say that actually kind of lends itself to the first question I had to you. Because <laughs> I was thinking after I read your paper, because Ludo Musicology, like I said, has never been on my own radar and I don't know much about games at all. Hmm. So I started looking into them a little bit. And I saw that Space Invaders came out, I think, mm. in 1978. Forgive me if mm-hmm. I'm wrong. No, you're right. And that also uses beep tones. Mm. And both the mothership character and the attacking aliens have their own kind of unique musical ideas to represent them. Mm. And these musical ideas, I guess, could be considered as leitmotifs, which are helping to tell the story. So you have the falling tetrachord representing the attacking aliens kind of when they shuffle side to side. And this leitmotif is played in ostinato, so it's accelerating as they move faster and closer to the game player. Mm. And you mentioned how the metronomic increase in the music of Donkey Kong <laughs> um, utilizes our yeah. subconscious sense of danger. And I guess, sorry for that ramble, I guess my question is, to mm. what extent is Donkey Kong unique? And to what extent is it building on existing games such as Space Invaders? Well, I think you've highlighted a significant way in which it does carry on a tradition uh, from Space Invaders. Uh, The aspect of Space Invaders that always sticks with me is the fact that the music did change, or does change, uh, based on what the player is doing um, through, of course, uh, uh, an increasing tempo. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I couldn't Mm -hmm. work out precisely whether it is the exact model of Game & Watch that I'm using that would cause the precise tempo increases or whether Mm -hmm. it was dictated Mm -hmm. um, uh, more or less randomly. Maybe there's a bit of give in the technology, perhaps uh, when it was first played um, sort of 30, 40 years ago, it was uh, changing tempo Mm -hmm. differently. I'm not really sure about that. I've looked at uh, Mm. other people's uh, recordings of their Game & Watch playing and it seems to to me that they all act in at least a fairly similar way uh, in terms of how the tempo increases are paced. Um, I think in a way that uh, Game & Watch functions as a precursor to other game well, game soundtracks, certainly uh, game soundscapes, um, Mm -hmm. I think it once again evidences not just an acceptance of the extreme confines uh, with which composers of early games had to deal, um, but I think they still managed to, as I've outlined, use just the right tones in a narratological way to get a message across. Um, the um, uh, piezoelectric speaker inside it um, is, uh, I mean, that's still in um, mobile uh, uh, cell phones today. Um, so that technology mm-hmm. in and of itself isn't anything all that drastic, but I think the fact that there is a tonal coherent, uh, coherence that's maintained, um, I think that is still a useful lens when looking at how these games were designed um, because it didn't necessarily have to be that way. I think there's a, an anecdote of um, uh, for, for Mario and Koji Kondo uh, sort of says something along the lines of, I just wrote the melody. Uh, it didn't all fit, so I took some bits out 
and that's what it was. <laughs> um, and that really uh, isn't much more uh, luxurious in terms of um, processing yeah. money than, than the Game & Watch. So, because the Game & Watch is a handheld device, how does that compare to the arcade-style devices? Is there, in an arcade-style device, I don't even know if you would call it an arcade-style device, I guess, giant console, is there more there for audio capability? Yep, there is. Um, Karen Collins is probably um, one of the first go-to sources on uh, that kind of era. The sonically combative environment of the arcade hall really mm -hmm. meant that uh, machines were largely competing with one another to uh, attract and then uh, and maintain interest with the public. Mm -hmm. um, and so we see a lot of beeps and fairly loud um, musical excerpts being used. Um, and then when the transition started to become more cemented from the arcade to the living room uh, and home consoles started to um, pick up pace with, uh, with sales, the audio soundscape definitely changed. Uh, it became more internal. Um, there wasn't the same need for um, abrasive sonic competition. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the Game & Watch is, uh, is largely f following that line, although I do find it interesting that its inspiration was... The story goes that um, um, Yokoi was on a train mm -hmm. and there were... Um, um, you know, businessmen in suits and they were playing with calculators on the bullet train. Mm -hmm. And he thought, well, they're obviously finding that pretty interesting. Why don't we try and firstly put a clock with it uh, so there's um, there's a timepiece aspect to it and why don't we try and turn it into a game? Um, uh, as uh, his, uh, his philosophy, uh, philosophy would suggest. And so to me, that doesn't even enter the arcade to home uh, console um, diaspora, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that the fact that the sound could not be turned off on this console mm -hmm. is quite okay. um, quite significant, mm -hmm. especially when oh, there was, it was a Nokia phone. I can't remember which one, mm, but it might have been mm, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, when it was released, Nokia made a point uh, in their very first pre uh, press conference of it saying mm -hmm. uh, that you can turn off the sound. We want okay. things to be made so that it can be muted if possible. Mm. Um, and, of course, from a, a, a creator's point of view and a <laughs> even worse, mm. a composer's point of view, <laughs> that's uh, y you're, you're in strife. <laughs> Whatever you have to do um, uh, may not be heard anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but so I think the saving grace for the audio with the game and watch was that it was so integral. Um, yeah. it, it was absolutely intrinsic to the games on it, um, that it, uh, it simply couldn't be without that timekeeping mechanism. Okay. So is it fair to say as consoles have developed and advanced that they've kind of changed the way that soundtracks are listened to when it comes to gaming? Um, what kind of effect has that had on, I guess, the larger field of ludomusicology as a whole? It has changed how people listen to music. Uh, it's really, I think, more a case of working out. I don't even know how you quantify that. Mm -hmm. Tommy Tallarico is um, the head of the Video Games Live Touring Orchestra. They um, go around the world and play game <laughs> music live. Um, with the uh, orchestral, um, he sort of takes the mm -hmm. orchestra on tour or they use local players, that sort of thing. Um, and there was a TED talk he did maybe five or ten years ago and he made the point, which I think is mm -hmm. probably still quite accurate, uh, that more people are listening to game music than any other form of music at this time. Um, and... That might seem preposterous, <laughs> um, but when you think that almost 
every mm-hmm. single game produced has at least a little bit of music, if not uh, a whole lot of music. Mm-hmm. Uh, many games have dozens and dozens of hours of music that will never be listened to by the player um, or are mm-hmm. unlikely to be listened to. Mm-hmm. Then when we think about how many people are gamers um, and uh, mm-hmm. have access to all of the console ranges, PC, we could extend that maybe to mobile games as well, um, then it wouldn't be unreasonable to think that uh, more people are listening to game music at the moment than any other form. Um, Soundtrack sales uh, started to become really big in the early to mid-90s when um, uh, CD uh, Redbook Audio started to take over from MIDI. Um, That obviously took the same hit as most other areas of the music industry with online distribution and pirating and uh, Mm -hmm. Napster and and, uh, all of that sort of thing. Um, It used to be, I think, more of a uh, an insurance policy for um, game publishers to have maybe a soundtrack that could be released with it. There'll be another income stream. It's nice, um, you know, synergy between the different areas of production. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there is such a an immense uh, uh, love of game music not just fandom, but a real genuine love by so many people around the world that I think um, releasing music with a game is all but expected now. Um, Mm. I managed to go to a video games live concert and it was a fascinating experience. If you ever can, well, if we can ever go anywhere, (laughs) um, yeah, (laughs) it's, um, I highly recommend it. Um, because it it wasn't like a rock concert where you know Kiss plays with an orchestra and okay. there's kind of the hardcore rock crowd and there might be some carryovers from the season ticket holders of the orchestra and it was much more even respectful. Um, I think the gamers for a, a, a group of you know sub so, sort of subcultural. Okay. Um, Um, groups who have been more or less assigned the stereotype of the geeky, socially awkward nerd, um, etc., etc., mum's basement, sipping 7-Up, they really loved the music and treated the orchestra with uh, utmost respect. I found it a really interesting experience. Um, And so, really, if you can think about it in any way, um, the music Great. in a game exists in so many other ways outside of gameplay um, that the game is potentially the least experienced uh, platform for a lot of fans. Mm. Um, if you listen to the music online or if you buy the album, um, you might uh, be listening with your friends, mm-hmm. you might study it, you might perform it. Um, then all of the time that you're not playing the game, you're still interacting in some way with that music. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really does take on a life of its own. Yeah, I guess it's probably fair to say that music is kind of integral almost to the enjoyment of playing a video game now. I mean, I'm a little biased, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but um, I think there's just so much that can be done with music that it would be um, perhaps reductive to argue against that. Um, Only a few separate um, uh, tones can Mm -hmm. be music um, in its, you know, the broadest understanding. And so a lot of games have only a few tones. Um, Ergo, they Mm -hmm. have music. Well, like Pong, um, that was the first game to include audio. I think, correct? Yes. yes. And yes. it has yep. rudimentary capabilities. <laughs> <laughs> Very rudimentary. Yeah. But isn't that just, and that's actually another area, getting back to a question mm-hmm. you asked before about um, where ludomusicology sort of leapt uh-huh. off other um, academic disciplines, yeah. is um, the uh, the eternal 
battle between narrative and yes. story, story and game, play, narrative, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Um, and I think even now uh, people still go back to um, um, Johann Huizinga and Roger Kewar and the concept of um, uh, Ludus and Paideia and try to frame games within that fairly, fairly binary um, uh, tool. Mm -hmm. But I think it is still there, even as you say, with the, the first um, forms of sound yeah. full stop in a game, um, there was still, it was a company, um, uh, a battle. Yeah. <laughs> there was a competition mm -hmm. going on. Definitely. I'm just kind of, I guess, maybe focusing in on Pong there um, for in terms of mm. storytelling, because you've got the ball's contact with the wall. And then when it contacts the paddle, it kind of it goes an octave higher. I think it's a natural when it hits mm. the wall. Um, and because this is so simple, could that be seen as audio providing a plot for a game? Mm. I think it could. Um, mm -hmm. I know of, I can recall some um, research that's been done that included Pong uh, mm -hmm. along those lines. And... I think that's probably another really pertinent example of, um, I know Roger Mosley has talked about uh, media archaeology, particularly uh, while referencing video games, but I think this concept of looking back at um, cultural artifacts that uh, we now perceive to have beyond commercial value um, mm -hmm. and looking at them with... Uh, with the benefit of all that we've learned about how games work and how game music works and um, how uh, they work today versus how people had to write lines of code to create these uh, these games with you know very very limited memory, um, mm -hmm. I think that's where we can discover even more about where the art form has come from. Or art form. Don't know if I should say that. Where the <laughs> the that's another whole kettle. <laughs> but the um, where it's come from, because uh, right, you have to you have to know where you've come yeah. from uh, uh, if you you know where it's going to go. Um, yeah, definitely. And particularly, as you said, such a simple mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, in its broader sense. Uh, that definitely the narrative of Pong is one of uh, competition. Um, yeah. There is an escalation of that through mm -hmm. a very um, simple musical mechanism and it absolutely contributes to the narrative. Okay, we can definitely go. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> um, at one point, and I hope this is in your final um, paper, um, you describe Mario's mission as a sufficient task. I hope I've said that word right. Um, so it's kind of the pointlessness, the fruitlessness, and the kind of unrewarding task that he is repeating over and over again. And it's essentially making his journey to save the girl endless. How is this idea of the Sisyphean reflected in the music? Is it reflected in the game's ending? Is there a resolution as such? Mm. There is. Mm -hmm. If anything, the music actually mm, might function antithetically to that in that uh, the, the task that is to be completed over and over again by Mario, uh, as you say, with, without reward, still escalates through an increase in tempo. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, as far as my um, knowledge of the, the story goes, I don't think Sisyphus was uh, made to, to push any quicker. Mm -hmm. um, that wasn't the point. Whereas, of course, uh, with, within this game, there is, I guess you could say, that added um, tension that's created. Mm -hmm. um, and like most games, there are some... Um, reprieves uh mario can receive another life 
if you reach, I believe it's 300 points, okay. um, and the player can then attain double points for a while, and that lasts until you um, die again. And mm-hmm. there are there are incentives, weirdly, to keep doing this thing that is frustratingly harder and harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, that's, I suppose, well, life more generally, but certainly games <laughs> as a uh, as a form of of, uh, of action. Um, and so, the final E to G trill really, to me, obviously for my argument, it, it supports my assertion that there's a minor tonality at play. But mm-hmm. I think it's a very rudimentary but um, perfectly effective way of saying the end Um, that is it you have no more lives Um, the other thing of course is that uh, the description in the instruction booklet paints very um, very basic uh, picture of what plot there is but to be honest I can't really see that the girl is in that much danger Mm-hmm. Um, she's sort of cordoned off from Donkey Kong to the side a little bit. Um, he doesn't seem to actually be attacking her in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find it interesting that w- with this um, with this version of Donkey Kong, we are asked to capture. Sorry, we are asked to rescue um, the the fair maiden who doesn't actually seem to be necessarily locked in a terribly scary castle tower um, mm-hmm. to to sort of fairly garishly mix a whole lot of um, metaphors and fairy tales. Um, so I almost wonder at Mario's uh, impetus because I'm not sure what he would ever do if he does actually ever truly defeat Donkey Kong. Um, yeah. Of course, whenever Donkey Kong does finally die, mm-hmm. uh, or at least he falls to the ground because his... Um, uh, his platform is destroyed. He somehow props himself back up on another platform, and there are another four hooks, and Mario has to keep going. Oh. <laughs> it's, there isn't really much reward. No. She does blow some kisses <laughs> to him. <laughs> but Mario sounds a little desperate when you put it like that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And, you know, this was when he was a carpenter. This was before he was even a plumber. Um <laughs> And so maybe, I don't know, maybe there's some, <laughs> there's some uh, hook in there to do with the, uh, the construction work site, which yeah. would make a lot more sense, perhaps, rather than a plumber, because it's only steel girders at this point. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what he's expecting. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> so the, kind of, the rhythm of the game, and you go into this a little bit in your paper, it indicates time, right? Mm, yes. So would I be right in thinking that it would be easier to play the game with the audio turned on? I would say so. I haven't actually tested that by um, maybe um, some form of deprivation, maybe um, um, covering my ears or something. Um, There is, I think, enough... um, uh, what's the word? The audio and visual uh, elements are synced well enough that I think mm-hmm. the audio beeps occur more or less simultaneously with the on-screen action. So uh, an advantage might be argued that if you turn the audio off, you actually can react to what you see only than perhaps sounds that are just a fraction later than what you see but um as i said they're pretty well synced up yeah so and i think particularly for games like this uh, i would have to defer back to the designer's intent that it uh it absolutely has to have this sound because the player needs that uh that guideline um something to something to work within Um, and perhaps work against um, later on. Um, And it does get, you can reach about, I think it's 999 points and and then it ticks over back to zero, but 
the tempo doesn't decrease at all. So um, it actually just keeps getting faster and faster until it's more or less impossible to actually, um, uh, with the, the haptic interaction with the controls, to actually make him jump in time. Um, and so that's where it all sort of falls apart. But um, even so, there's still mm-hmm. something to work with at least. Oh, definitely. I wonder what it would be like then there were silent games are there any silent games i guess games that came out maybe before pong before audio was added mm. um yep and there and there there still are it might be this is actually probably along the lines of what we were talking about with uh is it better with music or not yeah um, because i'm reminded of some games journey is probably one of the the biggest ones where the argument is made i think that it the music is not um it's it's it could be a score it could be accompaniment to the main character who is a fairly sort of amorphous um character anyway um but it's more about the uh sound and sight so the visuals and the audio components uh, working together in a, an experience more than anything. Um, yeah. And that does, I mean, the main, uh, uh, the main theme has a solo cello and, it, uh, you know, Austin Wintry did a, um, uh, wrote a whole score for it. So I'd never mm. say that it isn't music. Mm. Um, But I think it doesn't have to necessarily be locked into a tempo. Um, There doesn't necessarily have to be Mm -hmm. a style that's adhered to as long as, and that gets to another point actually, is the music subservient to the on-screen action, perhaps Mm -hmm. in a way that it isn't with other media. Um, Sometimes the juxtaposition of... uh, Music and uh, visuals that are really quite um, quite distanced can be refreshing. Um, uh, it might be a bit harder to get away with that uh, in games, um, but it's probably it's probably much the same as uh, you know every prog rock concept album that, that's ever been made. It, it's just really a case of working out how far can we push it. Um, before we don't think it it has beauty anymore, um, which is a, a far cry from Pong and Space Invaders and and Donkey Kong, really. But but it's also kind of exactly the same, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. It really is, and that marks the end of my questions. Really, um, do you have anything else you would like to add? I'd just like to say thank you, Kirsten. Oh, you're very uh, <laughs> it's been, yeah, well, it's been just such a pleasure to talk with you and um, uh, an honour to know that you are uh, interested in not just what I've been doing, but um, the wealth of topics that you cover in your podcast. <laughs> um, the other thing I'd say that uh, is the, the SSSMG, which is, um, sort of parent body of the Ludomusicology Society of Australia and the um, the UK one and the US and Europe um, has recently begun an academic journal. Okay. Uh, it's peer-reviewed. Mm-hmm. It's called the Journal of Sound and Music in Games by uh, University of California Press. Um, and that really is, I think, worth mentioning because until... Uh, hitherto, it really has been a case of trying to get your game music research into journals that are maybe more for film or certain periods of music or um, other musicological areas. Um, whereas now we have a uh, an academic journal that is specifically for the field. Um, and so, if anyone's interested, uh, it's uh, it's all available for free. <laughs> Um, which is always great. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of What Like It's Hard. Do let us know what you think. You can find us over on Facebook and Instagram under the handle at WLIH Podcast or the website, which is www.wlihpodcast.com. On the website, you'll find all of the details you need to participate with your own research through recording your own episode with us. Remember that when you subscribe through the WLIH Patreon page, you aren't just supporting the network here, you're also supporting the UK's leading student mental health charity, Student Minds. You can find all of that information and previous episodes on our website, which is once again www.wlihpodcast.com. This is a bi-weekly podcast, so our next episode will be available in two weeks. For the time being, keep up to date with what's happening on social media and join our mailing list. For now, stay safe and you'll hear from us soon. Oh, uh, time to go. I have to go to class, but um, meet me after on the benches.